This is Vince McKee. And Eli Mooneyham. And you're listening to the Keon Sports Podcast. Our guest today, from the MMA world and professional wrestling world, Ken Shamrock. Sit tight, put your feet up, and grab something cold to drink. Up next, Ken Shamrock. Welcome to the Keon Sports Podcast. I'm Vince McKees, and alongside me today is Eli Mooningham. We are so excited for today's guest, Ken Shamrock. As you've seen the last couple weeks, we've had on some of the top MMA fighters of yesteryear and today, along with professional wrestlers. Now is the best time possible to have Ken Shamrock on the show. As we always say, sit tight and put that feet up. Up next will be Ken Shamrock, and without any further ado, let's get into the phone now. Yo. On the hotline now is Ken Shamrock. You know him, you love him from the world of MMA, also professional wrestling. Ken, before we get started, good morning to you, and uh, we hope you're uh, happy, healthy, and safe out there. Yeah, absolutely, man. Doing well. Good to hear. So I uh, wanted to you know, start from the beginning here. You spent a great deal of time in Japan uh, during the earlier days of your career in both professional wrestling and also MMA with, with pancreas. Um way before you know you hit the main stage what can you say about the highly passionate and knowledgeable fan base of the fans over in japan yeah it's a little bit different culture over there i'm glad that um um i started over there because uh if you if you're over here in the states and you and you're used to performing in front of crowds especially back then uh you know you're talking in the the, the late 80s and the early 90s um, the fan base was different. So, like, say, for instance, if I was used to fighting here in the States, uh, people are screaming and yelling and cheering and uh, all the way through the, 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 the matches or whatever sporting event you're in. Over in Japan, um, it was a lot different because they studied the fights. Literally, the fans were quiet in there. I mean, you could hear a pin drop uh, until somebody landed a punch or uh, caught a submission, and then they would would all at the same time go ooh or ah. Um, so it was very different. And I remember uh, while I was over in Japan, um, there was uh, a couple guys that had come over from different countries in Holland and Germany, Brazil, or even the U.S. And they were used to fighting in front of crowds over there. And when they got into the ring, um, they started fighting and they would panic because nobody was screaming or yelling and they thought that maybe they weren't fighting hard enough or they weren't doing well. So they would force themselves to, to go harder and eventually put themselves in a bad situation. And I remember taking advantage of that quite a bit with guys that didn't really understand the fan base and how the fans reacted during fights. They would panic uh, because they thought that their fights were boring. So it was definitely a big culture um, change for a lot of guys. But I started over there, so for me it was a natural thing. And then when I came over to the United States and started fighting here, obviously um, it was a lot easier uh, while you're in the ring to get really get amped up because people were constantly screaming and yelling during the fight. So I would say, you know, my time there was... The biggest difference in, in competing in both was, was that, that the fan base was just so much different. You know, after a very successful start to your career over in Japan, you know, Pancrease, you decided to compete in the first ever UFC. I remember being a little kid watching it at home, thinking, man, I hope this event catches on because this, this is a really cool concept. For you as a fighter, a competitor at the time, someone who had a little bit of success under their belt already, what was intriguing to you? about coming over and being a part of that very first UFC. None of us knew what to expect. What expectations did you have going in, and why was it intriguing to you? Well, when I first uh, had been um, shown the actual um, video of what was supposed to happen, um, or was told what was supposed to happen, reading the flyer, I didn't believe it. And, of course, one of my students uh, kept telling me, no, no, this is, this is for real. It's not as hard. And I kept saying, no, it's just pro wrestling stuff, man. He goes, no, I'm serious. It's real. Anything goes. And I go, man, they can't do that here. I said, they have things they can and can't do. And so that's just not going to happen. 
And so I went ahead and made a call just to, to uh, you know, find out for myself uh, and put it to rest. But when I talked to Art Davies um, and, uh, and asked him, hey, you know, is this real? And he said, absolutely. And I was like, okay, well, you know, I, I fight over in Japan. It's something similar, not quite the same, but I'm a champion. And, uh, yeah, if uh, you have a room for me, I'd like to, to, to jump in and try it out. And, of course, you know, they always had to do their screening and stuff. So it didn't take them long to get right back to me and say, okay, yeah, you're in. They were excited to have me uh, because there was only one other grappler in the group, and that was Hoist. And me coming in from a different uh, country, uh, doing some similar kind of styles, would add a little bit more flair to the, the already loaded um, striking uh, brackets. And so now you had a grappler on one side and a grappler supposedly the way it's supposed to work out. Grappler on one side and uh, on each side of the bracket. But as we know, as the fight unfolded that night and how everything turned out, they put us both in the same same side. So um, not sure the understanding of that, but it, it was what it was. But again, like I said, it was definitely very intriguing to me because I was always doing something similar to that where it was basically what we see today, which is the MMA. Um, but this was something completely different where there was, you know, really everything was legal. We kick a guy when he's down and stand up and boot him in the face or, you know, punch him in the back of the head. Or, I mean, it was just literally a street fight. And I thought to myself, well, if this is going to happen, I don't want to miss it. I mean, I, I wanted to keep challenging myself and, and always be in the, in the uh, startup of something, all these things that I had felt was, in my opinion, was the best um, fighting league in the world, which was over in Japan. And then this came up, and I was like, well, this is just another step up. And so that's what really intrigued me in going into the UFC was that the, uh, the difference of it was really as far as you could go. Ken, good morning to you. It's Eli Mooney. I'm here for Keon Sports. Uh, I have a few questions about... Um, you talked about Hoist Gracie. I wanted to ask you, you returned to the UFC for the third pay-per-view with a focus on fighting him uh, you know, after losing the first time. After winning your first two fights over Christopher Leninger and Felix Mitchell, it was Gracie pulling out. The UFC stated that you pulled out because of injury, but some media has reported that you pulled out of your third fight because it wouldn't be against Gracie. Is there any truth to that? Yeah, it's absolutely the truth. And uh, everybody there knows it. that's what it was because... Um, um, I could have went in there and, and, uh, and faced uh, the kid from Canada. I don't even know his name. But Harold it, Howard. To me, it was like, you know, I was, that's it, Harold Howard. I mean, I think the, the, everybody really knows that that was just, that would have been an easy fight for me. And, but, you know, everything that I had gone through at that point in time, I was already champion over Japan. I had a chance to go in this fighting thing, find out that this was the real deal, that this is it, there is no holes barred, it's really happening, it did happen. And then to go in there and actually take um, take my opponent for granted, just not taking him serious and then getting choked. And it was just something that just just really stuck in me and I just couldn't let it go. And I, I mean, I remember thinking to myself, I can't, I've got to get this fight again. And I remember... Um, talking to, to the Art Davies and them and saying, man, I got to have that fight. I mean, I can beat him. I need that fight. And, uh, and of course, the fans uh, wanted to have me back, which was really a plus. So, you know, that's all that was on my mind training for the fight uh, is to fight him again. And um, when I did get the opportunity and I moved into the finals to see Hoyce walk into a match, and throw in the towel so that the opponent would be fresh going into the finals against me. Uh, when, when Hoist had no business going into that match, throwing in the towel, when they could have had an alternate come in, just like with me, where I had to fight an alternate in Felix Mitchell and make it into the finals. Hoist goes in there knowing he's not going to fight the guy. And the idea was to keep Harold Howard fresh, the finals, so that he had a better chance of beating me because Hoist didn't want to face me again. And thinking that if Harold was going to beat me, which that would have never happened, um, you know, that he would never have 
at me again or have to face me again. And of course, that probably never would have happened. But um, it was just to me, it was really, uh, it, it stuck in my stomach and I was so angry uh, that he walked in. He was able to walk into a ring, but yet he wasn't able to fight. And to me, when I heard the reason why he couldn't fight, because he was exhausted, I literally just lost my, my whole thought process because I couldn't believe somebody of his caliber would walk into a, 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 a ring, throw in the towel, and say you're too tired to fight. When everybody is tired when they get to the finals and fighting either three or four times to get there, you have some sort of um, injury, you have something wrong, but you persevere, you push through. That's what champions do. You know you're not going to get there unscathed. You know you're going to have different types of obstacles you're going to have to go through to win this thing. Um, and um, with the Gracies, it always felt like it had to be a perfect setup and everything had to be perfect. And the way that they would put things together to try to favor them, um, it just was sickening. And so in my mind, I'm going, I am not walking into the finals and beat a guy which I know I could beat with one arm tied behind my back. I'm just not going to do that. I am going to keep the pressure. And this is my thought. I'm going to keep the pressure on Hoist Gracie to fight me. And by not walking in there and fighting him and telling them I'm not fighting, not because I'm hurt, because Hoist is not in the finals. It put pressure on them to make that fight happen. And that's, that's why I got the fight. Ken, segueing here to UFC 6, you defeated Dan Severn to become the first super fight champion. You did it in less than three minutes. What, what was the factor in you being so dominant that night? And uh, can you talk about that for a moment here? Yeah, it was, you know, all my thoughts of training and to be the best, you know. Like I said, I was focused on horse. I wanted to beat him. I knew I could beat him. I didn't get the right opportunities, you know. I estimated the first time, the second time. You know, they threw in a time limit, even though I still beat them up. Um, and training for a three-hour fight. They come in, you know, day before the fight, tell us the time limit. Um, so everything that I did was to, to really be great. And so when I walked in to fight Dan Severn, I had trained ever since the very first UFC to be great. And I never took a day off. My constant thought was I wanted to be the greatest. And that I didn't want anybody to be able to touch me. And so I, I, I did. I worked that way. And so going in against Dan Severn, even though the odds were against me, I kept thinking in my head, how's this guy going to beat me? I'm not sure what the odds maker are looking at. Was he going to wrestle me to death? Um, because I'm not going to get tired. He's not going to outsmission me. He's not going to outstrike me. He may outwrestle me, but you can't win by outwrestling somebody. You either got to make him tap out or you're going to knock him out. And those are to my advantage. And uh, as, of course, as the fight unfolded, that's what it was. I was able to, you know, put him in bad positions and be able to submit him. And so um, I was pretty, pretty confident then, too, that I was going to be able to beat him because I felt like the only way I could lose this thing is if I, you know, walk into the ring, I tripped over a wire and cut my head or something. But uh, that's the only way I'm going to lose this fight. Ken, you brought up um, the rematch briefly. Um, can we talk about that rematch where it, in Michigan – had put in the uh, the state of Michigan put in those rules um, the, during uh, before the fight, and, and it just seemed like it was a it was a weird night. Can you talk about that for a moment? Yeah, this is the second fight with uh, Severin. Um, we were in Detroit, Michigan, his hometown. Um, you know, I remember going into that fight. I wasn't going to fight. Um, you know, I had a, a cracked rib. And a torn meniscus, which is just tissue, right? It's a, it's a thing you need. It's really irritating. It hurts. Um, and uh, and I had a, a, a fractured nose. And uh, so I trained. I still was going to go into fight because I felt like I could uh, I could literally out submission and out maneuver him on the ground with my submission holds. And that really was what was going into this fight was that I was just going to be able to I'll go in there and just be able to beat him with strikes. Uh, and be able to be uh, and out moving with submissions it's just like I did in the first one there's, there's no way this guy can beat me and uh, unfortunately um, with the submissions uh, I had that that fractured rib so then I had to start thinking about okay going into this fight now uh, I'm just going to have to knock him out and because I wasn't going to be able to move that well on the ground with the meniscus 
uh, and, and fractured rib, and of course the, the nose, but the nose was just something that was there. It might have started bleeding or whatever, but that, that wouldn't have been an issue. But it was more the ribs of being able to tuck in and out um, and being able to stay healthy enough to where it wouldn't break. Um, but I felt like I could do that, so I go into the fight, and they tell us that we, we can't punch. I mean, literally, the commission says, these are the rules. You cannot punch an opponent. And I'm thinking to myself, well, how are we going to do the event? Well, then they gathered everybody up and told people that, oh, here's, here's how it's going to work. Here, you're going to go in there. Um, you can't punch, but if you do happen to punch, wink, wink, we'll find you at a later date. Wink, wink, which we were told we would never be fined. And I remember it was probably a week or two prior to that. It was just over the Canadian border, over the bridge. They had a fight. The same thing had happened. Um, whereas they said if, if, if anybody punched that um, it was illegal and that the police would arrest them. Well, they didn't believe them. And, of course, they did the fight. Guys punched and they got arrested. And I had a group home for kids at the time where I was teaching them that you could do whatever you want as long as you stay within the rules. And I remember that weighed heavily on me because I was thinking, well, I'm, my whole strategy is to knock them out because they're not going to maneuver very well on the ground. So I'm just going to win and knock them out. Well, now that's, that's gone because I, I'm not going to break the rules. I can't. I mean, I, I can't do it because if I get arrested, then I, they're going to shut the home down. I mean, this is literally a government home, whereas the state is is putting and placing these kids in this home. And if I get arrested for punching somebody, which is a violent crime, they're going to shut this home down. And these kids are all going to place somewhere else. And I kept thinking to myself, I'm not fighting. I can't fight. And I remember they came up to my room and the place was sold out and they were complaining about if I didn't fight, the UFC was going to go downhill. There was a lot of pressure on me, so I went ahead and did the fight anyways. And um, they awarded Dan the win, which was the most boring fight ever. It is the most boring fight in UFC history, and I was a part of it. And um, it just, to me, it was disgusting um, that they even went forward with it because they were asking people to do things um, that was not uh, a way to build the world of MMA and that, that, that type of event moving forward was that we didn't need that kind of black mark uh, for trying to build an event like this. And unfortunately, I thought it was a bad decision. I went ahead and went in there and I did not punch. And they did. And I remember thinking to myself, even if it was a bad fight, right? But I don't think anybody ever did. And neither one of us did enough to do anything to win. And I thought to myself, how do you change hands up from the belt uh, if, if nobody really did anything? And I should have probably stripped us both of the belt and put it up for open tournament. But anyways, um, they said Dan won the fight. Well, I remember asking Art Davies, I go, well, how did he win? He goes, well, you landed more punches. And then I said, he landed more punches. Those were illegal. And he looked at me. I mean, I kid you not. He looked at me and said, come on, kid. You know better than that. And I was thinking to myself, these are grown men. Which makes you literally telling people that these laws don't matter. Rules don't matter. And I just, man, I had a lot of times and those, those type of things in the beginning days where, you know, I wasn't an innocent person. I broke, I broke rules and I did a lot of things that I'm not proud of. But to try and turn around and sell it to somebody and say, no, no, come on, you know better than that. You know, I just, it just, it just was a wild, wild west back then. You know, in December of 1996, you left the UFC at MMA World as an active fighter. I do realize, you know, because I remember watching it. You were still training guys like Guy Metzger, Jerry Bolander, you know, on and on down the list. But as an active fighter in the cage, <clears throat> you left in December 96, didn't return until May of 2000. Why did you make the choice to leave the World MMA as an active competitor and join the World Wrestling Federation at the time? Well, I think it came down to the um, attorney fees um, and the uh, constantly... Uh, 
being shut down from place to place. Uh, they couldn't pay the fighters what they needed to because they were spending so much money on lawyer fees and, and trying to fight their way through all these different events. Um, and that's basically what they said. They said, listen, we're, we, you know, we're, we're, we're tied up in lawsuits all the time. A lot of the money's going out defending ourselves. And he says, they just couldn't pay what I needed. And I said, well, I can't keep going like this because, you know, I have a family, you know, uh, I've got three kids, um, you know, at the time I had three kids and, and a wife and I had, uh, you know, a gym and I had a fighter's house and I had, of course, my house and, and I was supporting all these things and I was like, I can't make my payments. And I always told myself, you know, as long as I'm able to take care of my family and do something I love doing, I'll do it. But if it comes to a point where I can't do what I love to do to support my family, then I've got to go and do something else. And that's really what it came down to is I wasn't able to make the money I needed to make, which was promised to me. Um, um, but I understood where they were at too when they when they promised that I would I would in my next contract that we would we would go up. Um, but I, I did understand where they were at. But then I asked them to understand where I was at, and they did. And so I said I went my way uh, to find other endeavors to try to make enough money to support the fighter's house, support the gym, Lions Den team, and to support my family. And I was able to do that through pro wrestling. And that's the reason why I left. And, I'm, I'm, and fortunately for me, I was able to find something that I loved doing. Um, didn't know it at the time until I started doing it. Um, but I really fell in love with pro wrestling. I really thought, you know, it was definitely not what I thought it was. It's not a bunch of guys running around uh, out of shape and, you know, people that are, are, are stupid or ignorant, they're, they're very intelligent people. Uh, they're in great shape. Um, and a lot of them don't look like it, but they are. They're strong. They're big. And a lot of agility, very athletic. And they, they have to think. they got to be able to think also. So for me, it was something really fun that I got involved with. Um, and, of course, I fell in love with it, and I do it to this day. You know, Ken, as a, a journalist now, but, you know, like most of us journalists, we're all fans at the time, and I'm not going to shy away from the fact that you were one of my favorite MMA fighters, and absolutely, as a diehard WWF fan at the time, one of my favorite wrestlers as well. So it was no surprise to me, you got extremely over with the fans in the WWF right away. Right from WrestleMania 13 on, the crowd was behind you, you were ridiculously over with the fans. The WWE could have went with you over Stone Cold Steve Austin as the face of the company, and I truly believe still would have had the massive success that they did. They ended up going, you know, with Austin. Bret Hart leaves the company. We'll get to that in a second. But they went with Austin instead of you. Why do you feel they made that choice? And do you think that if you would have been the face instead of Austin, if he never would have came back from that neck injury, do you think it would have worked as well? Yeah, I mean, that's, those are things that you look at and you go, what if, right? But I truly believe that, you know, Austin deserved it. You know, he was in the business a long time. He was a career wrestler. Um, I came in. I was a short-timer. Um, if if I was in Vince's shoes, I would have went with that. Of course, I, I think I would have used me uh, along with um, Stone Cold uh, in a lot of different creative ways to either one impact me with Stone Cold or me impact Stone Cold with me or me with him. But there would have been a lot of really good opportunities there, even with Bret Hart. There was just a lot of great opportunities to still use me in a big role, even though I would not have put me at the forefront because you don't know what you're getting with me because I hadn't been in the wrestling business for a long period of time. So nobody really knew me or knew what I was able, capable of doing or, you know, or whether I was even trustworthy or not, because no one knew me uh, as a wrestler. It was a very short time. So I think they went with somebody they understood, you know, Bret Hart's a career, Stone Cold was a career, and to be able to put yourself uh, in their shoes, that was a safe move. But again, like I said, I do, I do, I don't disagree, I disagree on how they used me. I think that there was a lot more better opportunities um, that were still there, even though I thought they were right going with uh, Stone Cold and Bret Hart for the face. You know, uh, and, and you mentioned that as well. 
uh, early into your run, speaking of Red Heart, was the infamous Montreal screw job. You know, you were there, you were part of the main event in July. Only a few months before that happened, they had that they had that in your house show can you know, I think it was called the Calgary Stampede or the Canadian Stampede, and it was incredible. That was one of the loudest crowds I've ever heard. So Canada was behind him. You know, how shocked were you that night in Montreal of what happened with the Montreal screw job? And also, you know, as someone who had gone through everything that you had gone through to get to the level that you did, trust is a big deal. We've had a ton of professional wrestlers on the show, quite a few. And that's the one thing they say, you have to trust the person in the ring with you, you have to trust the referee, and you have to trust the promoter. Did that night hurt your trust in McMahon or the industry in general, or do you actually agree with what happened? No, I, I, I've mentioned this uh, in a couple of interviews where um, on that night I, 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 I was completely lost because I, I, that's how I was uh, built into this uh, in the way that I was able to have the success I had was that I had to get guys to trust me because you know, I was a shooter and I was a real deal. And to have these guys go in the ring with me and be able to trust me, I had to, to do a lot to gain that trust. Um, and to have them to be able to work with me and not be in fear of me doing different moves and stuff. And, and that took me a while to get it. And then to see something like that, it just completely blew me away because I was like, man, this, that's what this thing is built on, is trust. It has to be. Because it's not like you're out there defending yourself for real. You're giving people your body. You're giving people your character and your life to be able to build storylines that are not going to embarrass your family or your friends um, and be able to ruin your career. And in today's world, it's even more so where it can really ruin your business because of the social media aspect to it now. So it was really a big deal when, when that happened. And it, a lot of people were really confused on how and why that happened because if, if there was an issue uh, and I believe there was because I, I think that it Brett had, had mentioned and I know he said it to me that he wanted to drop the strap to me he didn't want to drop it to Sean he would drop it to me uh, and I'm sure it probably would have been a maybe in the other world, but he, that's what he told me and um, but for whatever reason Vince wasn't happy with that and I think that um, they wanted to, 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 to take it off Brett. And I think that having that screw job where Sean was the one that did it, which is probably the worst person in the company that Brett wanted to drop the strap to was Sean because uh, they did not like each other. Two of the best talents in the business and they did not like each other. And so it was really a hard it was a hard time to be on the road uh, at that time, even though we were all making money and stuff. But there was always that, you know, edge to it whenever Sean and, and, and uh, Brad were going to work. So it, it really did kind of mess up the flow. Uh, I think things started kind of get uncomfortable, um, you know, because then, you, you know, you had, you know, um, Owen, who got, you know, obviously killed, and then you had... You know, Draws, who got his neck broke. I mean, there's just so many things that happen in wrestling. Uh, and, you're, and, and and the trust was there at the time. Imagine now, after that, there's no trust and all those things are happening. Um, it's just a scary thought because it's, it is a dangerous business. Ken, one of your first long-term programs segueing here uh, was with The Rock. Could you notice something early on about The Rock and that, you know, everybody sees him now and, and talks about the charisma and everything with him, but did you see anything early on when you were in a program with him? Well, I, I mean, well, well, no, because they didn't really give him a chance. I mean, he was with the nation. Um, Farouk um, had the mic, um, you know, and he was, he was green just like I was trying to find his, his character and, 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 you know, where he was going because he came in as Rocky. And, of course, then he took the name The Rock, which was my name, The Rock, and The Rock Shamrock in, in MMA before that. Um, and he, was, he took that nickname. And, and once, he, once they gave him the mic and he was able to start talking, I think that's when you saw the spark. That's when you realized where the talent was. It wasn't the stuff that he did in the ring. 
Um, you know, it was more of the stuff that he was able to build outside the ring with a mic. And then when he went into the ring, he already captivated the audience by his charisma on the mic. And I think, like I said, once they gave him the mic, he started seeing that superstar. Can they, uh, while in your run with the WWF, they eventually turned you heel. How did you find out that was the course they were going to take, and why was that decision made to turn you heel? You had just uh, won the King of the Ring, and it seemed like the momentum was going for you. Well, I think they were just experimenting, and, and that whole, you know, first my first experience, I think, was all experimental. I mean, there was really no direction. Um, they didn't know what to do with me. Um, here they had this this talent that everybody was faking it. You know, you, you I mean literally you had Goldberg and you had Stone Cold Steve Austin that were all my character, all the tough badass, don't give a crap, um, MMA, no rules bar, tough guy. Um, and they were they were creating these characters. But yet, you had one already there that was for real. And, um, yeah, it just, again, man, like I said, it was just one of those times where I just felt like they just didn't know what to do with me. They, they had all these creative ideas. I was over with the fans, but they never really gave the fans anything really to really get behind. They got behind the guy that came from MMA. Uh, you know, he wrestles well. Uh, you know, he's got great charisma, but yet there was no storyline. Me and Iraq put together a storyline for a short period of time there, and, and, and at least in my opinion, everything that I could feel at the time, going up against guys um, like Stone Cold and Shawn Michaels and The Undertaker and, you know, the X, the X Division. Or, you know, I mean, there was a lot. I mean, that, that era, there was a lot of top people there. And yet, we were the ones that were doing the matches, and we were the ones that felt like we were the ones out in front, me and The Rock with our with our storyline. But yet, it, once The Rock moved up, that was it for me. I mean, there was nothing else they were doing with me, and it just felt like they, they just didn't really know what to do with me. You had a positive history with Owen Hart, Ken, working a couple of programs with them. If, if you don't want to talk about this, we can move on, but you had to perform the night he passed away. How hard was that? Um, and do you think they should have stopped the show? No, I, again, um, knowing Owen, you know, he, he's not going to want you to stop the show. Um, and I think that it could have gone either way. I, I would have been okay either way with it. Um, you know, showing the respect to the family, uh, to the friends, uh, even to the fans. Uh, because I think by not stopping the show, the fans didn't know it was real. They didn't really know. And it was months before the fans really understood that he, you know, he, he, he's dead. Um, because we kept the show going on. Um, so there was no, there was no real change, but at the same time, I understood why they kept the show going on, because if we stop it, how long do we stop it for? Um, and if you do stop it and you allow people to reflect, how heavy does that become when you start up again and start wrestling again? Uh, how much does that hurt your characters and the people that are involved in wrestling? Um, by continuing to keep moving forward and trying to reflect and still be concerned and still, um, you know, show um, the support to the family and all that while you're still moving, it doesn't really give a chance for the wrestlers and the people involved in it to really reflect heavily on it and let it affect them moving forward. So, you know, you could see it in both ways where show must go on, that's what he would want, to the family going, no, hold up, let the fans mourn, let the fans know, no, this is not a skit. This is something that really happened. Um, and, you know, so like I said, it could have gone either way, but we went the way of not canceling the show, went with the way of actually moving forward. 
And uh, it was a decision that I think um, it was one that was a unanimous. Uh, wasn't not everybody uh, was agreement with it, but the majority of the people felt like that's what we should do, and so that's what we did. At the tail end of 1999, you departed from the WWE and returned to MMA with pride, and then eventually the UFC in 2002. Uh, Two-part question for you here. One, why did you leave pro wrestling to go back to MMA full-time? And two, how special was it you know, at UFC 45 to be inducted into their Hall of Fame alongside Hoist Gracie at the time? Yeah, well, when I left um, the UFC, I left because... Um, there was no way I could support my family with what they would want to pay me. They were struggling. They were having issues. Um, and so I needed to move on. Um, not by choice, but because it was a financial strain on my businesses. So I moved on uh, to be able to make the money I needed to. During that time, of course, I fell in with pro wrestling. I enjoyed it. But then there was a point in time where me and the Rockets finished our program and he moved up, and it just felt like I told you guys before, like they just didn't know what to do with me. And then they were asking me to do these different skits that I just was very uncomfortable with. And I had said no to two of them, and then it just felt like I was getting beat uh, uh, constantly um, on house shows and on, on, on pay-per-views and stuff. Like it just started to turn the other way um, and I don't know if it was because of the Bret Hart thing and Shawn Michaels, the screw job, and because I was a part of the clique with Bret. Um, I don't know. I, I truly don't know. But I know that things weren't moving like they were when I was running the program um, with The Rock. Um, and so I felt like in order for me to protect my character, I had to move on. I had to get, uh, get out of my contract and go to go back to what really made me who I was. And I felt like the MMA world had changed. Uh, it, it, it was still struggling, but I felt like um, I had uh, ran its course there. I wanted to get back into the MMA world and and uh, see if I couldn't help rejuvenate it, get it you know, flying again. And um, so I was able to do that. I got a, a pretty good contract with Pride. Um, I went over there, and, and of course, I was out of it for a long time. It's, you know, I had my first fight back, I won. Um, then my next two fights I struggled with. Um, uh, just you know, injuries, a little bit older, not being in it. So it was, it was struggling trying to find that groove again. Um, but then I had a shot with the USC where you know they wanted to do this, this, this rivalry that I had or this, this, this heat that I had with uh, Tito, they wanted to, to try to turn into a match because they were struggling. I mean, they were literally struggling to put 30,000 people on pay-per-view. Uh, and I told them, well, I can do that. And so, you know, um, I did it. I put in 150,000 buy rates. I mean, just, just crushed it. Um, and then, of course, from that time went on and put in 250,000 to a million. So, you know, they got what they wanted out of me and, and was able to build the UFC where it needed to be. And I was happy to do that and proud to do that. I didn't like how it went down, but but but, it, but I did what I wanted to do and got it done. Um, but to stand there uh, in the ring uh, and, and, and reflect uh, during that Hall of Fame induction, uh, how it all started, being over in Japan before it started here, and then... The, the very first UFC and how, you know, unorganized and, and how raw everything was. And then to, to see where it was at with rules and regulations and commissions and pay-per-view and, you know, it's just, it, it just the journey. And to stand there and be recognized as the father uh, of this world of Noel's Bart and MMA was one that I'll never forget and I will always appreciate because it, it really was. It was something that I felt uh, in from the 80s and 90s and even in the 2000s that I was a part of some very big opportunities, whether it was in Japan, whether it was here in the United States. Um, I was a part of the change 
in three to four different generations, opportunities, big events to help build companies uh, and being recognized during that, that, that night, that one time as that person uh, was very satisfying. Uh, and it's almost like feeling like, okay, you know, you, you're a world champion, you know, you have goals to set out, you want to be the best, you get there, um, and then your career's at the end, and the, the icing on the cake is for people to say, hey, we recognize you as being one of the greats. That right there is the icing on the cake. You know, Ken, we're going to wind down the interview now, and thank you for taking time to speak with us. The last part of this is going to be MMA-focused, but I have to ask you this, because um, I, was, I wasn't planning on asking this question. However, you, you brought it up, so I wanted to ask one last thing about your WWE run, WWF at the time. Um, <clears throat> I thought it was a little strange, you know, they, they brought in, um, a young lady, they called her Ryan Shamrock to try to make it, you know, she was your, you know, your sister. The, the theory of the big brother sticking up for the sister is something I can relate to because I, I have actually, I have two young daughters, so I get the whole concept. But my question is this, um, and again, I wasn't even planning on asking this, but you mentioned it, so I'm going to bring it up. What, what skits did they want you to do that you, you said no to because... You know, I've read stuff and, and spoken with fellow wrestlers that they had some weird ideas that they wanted you to do. And, you know, again, as a father of two daughters, I'm kind of glad you didn't. But, you know, what did you say no to that you're comfortable talking about right now? Yeah, one of them was they wanted, uh, the reason why I was so protective over my sister was because I was in love with her. Um, you know, and they wanted to play the incest um, angle. And I was like... You know, I have a son, an oldest son, boy, a boy, Ryan, and and they're, they're you know they're 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 in they're grade school, right? I mean, these kids don't even know wrestling's fake, and so I'm thinking to myself, you want me to go in there and act like I want to? I want my sister, and I just said, you know what, man, that is going to ruin my family. They're not going to understand this, and I just I couldn't do it, and I told them no. Um, and the other one was China. They wanted me to go in and actually have a match with her. And, and uh, I told them, I said, you know, I, I'm really strict uh, with my kids on how they treat women. Um, and I said, uh, one of the strict things is that you do not hit a woman, period. And I said that, you know, this is wrestling. I know it's all fake. I said, but they're at an age right now where they don't understand that. And I said that it's going to go against what I'm trying to teach them. And, um, you know, I said, we've gotten older. It wouldn't have been such a big deal. But it, it was just really difficult for me to, to do those things at that time. Even though, I mean, I've done some things that, you know, I'm not proud of. I've had a wild life. But those were all behind closed doors. Those were all things that I hid. Um, trying to teach my kids the proper way to be grown up. And then they make their own decisions from that point. But I felt like at that time there was this learning uh, curve that you had. You have a certain amount of time to teach them those things. And I felt like it was a very important time in their life that they needed to be taught those things. You never hit a woman. Um, and that, you know, that incest thing, it was just something that would have hurt them uh, in school and everything else. And so those were the things that um, that I felt I couldn't do. And again, like I said, I mean, I get why they were doing it. Those were subjects that would have probably hit. They probably would have went big because, you know, those are things that people hate or, or disgust with. You want to, you know, make a heel, you know, turn them into something people are going to hate. Uh, but unfortunately, me at that time, I wasn't me personally was able to do that because of where I was at in my life was raising my kids. Thank you for sharing that with us, Ken. Those definitely were interesting. Um, we're going to transition here back to uh, MMA world, if you don't mind. We're going to switch back uh, and talk about your fight against Tito Ortiz. Uh, the first time you fought him, you were... It was at UFC 61. You had. Time, I'm sorry. The second time you fought uh, UFC. Or Tito, excuse me. The second time you fought Tito was at UFC 61. Um, you had an injured ACL the first time you fought him. Um, but the second time, the fight was stopped quickly as you were down, but you appeared to be okay. How frustrating was that to have that happen? It was frustrating because um, when I, you know, when I fought Tito, I was I'm six, 17 years older than him. So I'm in my 40s, you know, and he's 26, 27 in his prime. And in my opinion, 
uh, probably one of the greatest 205-pound fighters ever, um, just a dominant force. And I felt like, you know, going in there, the only chances that I had was my toughness, um, that I would be able to hang in there as long as possible to be able to catch him with the submission and be able to, you know, hurt him with it enough to where he wouldn't be able to walk. Um, but because of the way that the rules had changed and the way that the, the referees were stepping in and stopping fights, that my toughness wasn't something that I could use anymore. Um, you know, and that was something that I pride myself on was that I was able to go through everything. You could hit me a hundred times and I would find a way to win. Um, you know, cause you're going to get tired sooner or later. I'm going to catch you and make a mistake. And it just felt like during that time that the rules had changed so much that toughness was never an opportunity to use as a, as a, a weapon. And you know, even guys like Oleg Tatarov, if he was fighting in today's world, man, he'd never win a fight. Because most of the time when Oleg won was after he had taken a beating, and then he was able to catch a guy getting overconfident or whatever and be able to tap him out. Um, but those fights like that just weren't going to happen anymore because they were just stepping in and stopping them way too fast. Transitioning here, you had one fight left on your UFC contract when it was terminated by the promotion. Why do you feel they did that, and did it upset you? And if it did, you know, can you talk about that? Yeah, I mean, the reason why um, they did that was because I was um, contracted with the IFL, which was the fight team, um, and they put together a Lions uh, team that um, was, you know, had six, eight fighters on a team. And I felt like, wow, great opportunity to get, get guys uh, to be able to fight and give them opportunities to fight from the Lions den. And, um, you know, because the UFC wasn't using them at the time. And so, you know, I'd get one or two guys in there, but I can't get eight of them in there. And I, so I thought that was a great opportunity for me to be able to coach them and be able to be a coach there and be able to have my guys fight and have at least you know, three, four fights a year for these guys and be able to make some money. And so I, in my contract, I called that, I called that out where I could coach my fighters. And well, when I did that, I guess, and I didn't know this at the time, but I guess Dana had some issues with some of the guys that were on the IFL because they had left the UFC and they, they did them wrong or something. I don't know everything that had happened, but Dana was very upset at some of the guys that were in the IFL. And I, I had no idea on this. So I went ahead, went forward and actually did this because I wasn't against my contract. Well, when I was doing the reality show, <clears throat> I had, I had uh, asked uh, Dana for a meeting because I wanted to talk to him about an, an endeavor that I had coming up and I wanted to inform him that this is what I was doing and I just wanted to make, you know, make him a heads up, which I didn't have to do. I was doing it out of courtesy. And so we, we had lunch. I remember sitting there and telling me, hey, I'm, I'm, uh, I've got an opportunity to uh, have my fighters fight on the IFL. And the minute I mentioned IFL, he said, uh, those people, are, they're, they're, they're garbage. You know, there's a lot more choice words than that. He used, he used uh, some language that I won't use. But he was very upset, that even at the, the name IFL. And I was like, Dana, I'm sorry, but I've already agreed to coach my fighters on there. I said... I have a contract that states that I'm able to coach my fighters. I said, I didn't realize that there was an issue here. And he says, there is. He says, if, and which this is what shocked me. He says, if you, if you are on that and you coach them on there, if you go forward with this, you will not fight in the UFC again. And I looked at him and I said, Dana, I have a contract. I said, I'm, it's okay for me to coach my fighters. I said, why would you go? Why would you go against the contract? He said, I don't care what the contract says. He says, if you go forward with this, you will not fight the UFC again. I looked at him, and of course, then I got mad. I'm like, Dana, you can't do that. And he goes, Yes, I can. And of course, he can because he did. You know, and went to court. They won a court case, and um, even though I had it carved out, but uh, yeah, so it just it it, it, it just stuck in me. I was like, like. I looked at him, I said, well, okay, I'll tell you what, uh, if you can get all eight of these guys a contract here, I said, I won't do it. So the only reason why I'm doing it is because I want these guys to have opportunities to fight, and I want to coach them. Obviously, they do better when I'm there. 
And he says, well, I'm not, I'm not going to guarantee anything. He said, I'm just telling you, if you do it, you won't fight again. And I was like, so it didn't go well. And even if you watch the reality show, it wasn't, uh, they didn't paint a very good picture of me. Um, so anyways, it, it, it was what it was. And um, I stuck to my guns and, uh, you know, I defended what I believe was right. Absolutely. And Ken, if you don't mind, we're going to transition here. Uh, and talk about a little bit of current uh, UFC. This weekend, uh, Jorge Masvidal stepped up on short, super short notice, actually, uh, to face Kamaru Usman for the UFC welterweight championship. Um, who do you, if you, if you do have a prediction, who do you think wins this fight? And do we, if if so, do either of these guys hold a claim to the best fighter? right now or all time, and if not, who is the best fighter currently in the game and has a claim for that all time? Well, I don't know that. There's just so many things that you look at with the fighters and the way that things change over the years. Uh, and then when people look at who the best fighters are, they always forget the beginning days. So it just it's not a fair assumption. It's like trying to compare the 80s uh, running backs to the to the 2000 running backs uh the, it's the game's changed the rules are changed that uh, makes things different and same thing with the ufc things are changed rules are changed things are different um so to compare it, all of them I, it wouldn't be fair um but I, like i said i think that you know this fight is interesting it is it's very interesting uh, and i think the fans deserve to see these kind of fights and i like the attitude of these guys because it's like they need a fighter, a guy will step up and fight. And they're world champions. Like, they don't have to, right? But both these guys are saying, yeah, man, if he's the best, I'll fight him. You know, one last question for you to end the interview, and we want to thank you again for coming on Keon Sports. Myself, Vince McKee, alongside my co-host today, Eli Mooningham. We greatly appreciate it, Ken. I uh, want to thank you as a journalist and also as a fan, a little kid who you inspired many years ago uh, for that. I cannot thank you enough. Last question for you today is this. In both MMA and professional wrestling, who were the two people that you never got to share a cage with or a ring with that you always wanted to? Basically, what fight did you always want to have that you never got a chance to have the fight? And in wrestling, who did you never get to you know, kind of headline with that you thought would have been a, a great rivalry? You know, for MMA, it's not that I didn't get to face him. It's the time that I faced him. And I would have said Tito because I felt like Tito was one of those guys that, you know, he, he was good, right? I mean, like he just had the takedowns and the ground and pound and smooth. Um, and, and, uh, and, he, and, he, and he figured the conditioning out. And I felt like in my prime, um, that would have been one of the greatest rivalries ever. Uh, in any fight world, um, I thought if we both would have been in our primes fighting each other, I believe that would have been something to see. Because I really feel like uh, it would have been one of those ones that in any given night, uh, one guy, one or the other guy could have went. Um, but unfortunately, that didn't happen. Uh, you know, I was 16 years older than him, and we didn't get to make that happen. But, um, but it's nothing but respect for him. I thought that, uh, and I do have a lot of respect for him. I think that. And in my opinion, I think at the 205-pound class, in his prime, he was, at least in my opinion, one of the best at 205 pounds. Uh, I would say in the wrestling world, um, and he was in the other organization, WCW, I would have really loved been able to have matches against Goldberg because I know he was there was some things going around about being stiff and this and that. But that was my, those were the matches I enjoyed the most. Like when I had it with Van Vader, my first match with him, um, people were like, dude, that was stiff. And I was thinking to myself, no, that felt like the real deal. It felt comfortable. It felt natural. Uh, and it was a great match. And it was different than what they were used to seeing. And I felt like Goldberg, we could have had some matches like that. Uh, him with his character and what he was, his character carved out to be. And I felt like with my character and, and my skill sets, I thought we could have had some great matches that we never got a chance to. 
Well, Ken, thank you again for coming on the show today. We greatly appreciate it. We don't want to let you go without giving you a chance at some free advertising. I want you to go ahead. I want you to plug your website, the books, whatever you want to do. How can fans follow you? How can they support you? Where can they learn more about you? I want the floor to be yours. Go right ahead and plug whatever you want. Yeah, first of all, um, I have all of my social networks um, on my website. So if you go to kinshamrock.com, uh, you can get all of my uh, other stuff up there, like Facebook, you know, Instagram, Twitter, all of that stuff's on there. Um, so kinshamrock.com. And also, too, if, uh, if you want to follow me in the, in the fight world and things we're doing there, it's valorbk.com. Um, we are doing the bare knuckle. Um, obviously we're not launching anything right now. We're building our network right now. We're getting all of our social content put together. So a lot of exciting things going on there at dollarbk.com. So with those two right there, you can get all the information you need on what Ken Shamrock is up to and what's, what's going on in the future. That sounds great, Ken. I will do so. Uh, you know, I want to thank you on behalf of myself, the company Keon Sports Media Group. And uh, I want to thank you again and wish you a blessed day and uh, stay safe and uh, God bless. All right, you guys. Appreciate you, man. Say hello to my fans out there. Thank you for support over the years. And I'm just getting started. Love it. Thank you, sir. So that was Ken Shamrock. Like we said, you know him, you remember him, and uh, we all loved him from the world of MMA and also pro wrestling. Eli, uh, one last question to you to wrap it up. Uh, <laughs> you know, him versus Goldberg, that could still happen. Think about it. Goldberg just fought back in February. Actually, back at WrestleMania in April. I would love the WWE to bring back Shamrock maybe for one more run. You know, they, they've done that with some of the legends. Yeah, it would be interesting, Vince. But I think Ken sounds pretty content with everything he's done. I mean, you know, he's a UFC Hall of Famer. He did his thing with the WWF. He's done everything. I mean... I don't know where the relations would be like with the WWE at this point. You know, he hasn't been there in a while. So I wonder how it would go. But obviously Goldberg wasn't with the WWE for, you know, a while. And things got repaired. It would be interesting. I mean, they have done it with, you know, Goldberg. And they've tried a lot of different things lately. You know, you've seen them bring in, like, Tyson Fury. And you've seen them bring in, like, Cain Velasquez and all this other stuff. In 2020, I'm not putting it past anyone like, that's what I'm saying. This year has been nuts, so I'm yeah. not putting it past anyone. Very good point. You know, I wanted to make one more uh, point, too. So, crazy enough, you know, for me, watching UFC growing up, the, and like he said, the early days. Right. Okay, it was, we're talking bootleg tapes off of people's TVs. Yeah. You know, so watching everyone being a huge fan of his, a couple things I want to make a point. Number one, I remember when he beat Dan Severn, I was a little shocked. And the dominant way that he ran through Severn, right. like a hot knife through butter. At UFC 6, I'm like, okay, this is great. Then you have the rematch. And you have this rematch where they're just walking around each other for 30 minutes. And I'm like, what in the holy hell is going on right now? So to have Ken explain all that, I think it was great. The fan appeal with Ken, he would come out in these glorious robes. And we're not talking flower ones or feathery ones like like, uh, Ric Flair or the Boas. I mean, these were sharp robes, okay? He came out. He had the Lions Den. It was really the Lions Den was really the first MMA team there ever was. The first MMA camp, just incredible. Then you know you had this guy, and again I'm talking as a fan here, guys, just strictly as a fan. You know, watching him grow up, going into as I grew up, I should say, not him, but him going to the WWF at the time. I truly thought he was going to be the next big thing, not like Brock Lesnar next big thing, but really legit. And I truly believe, like he said, if Stone Cold Steve Austin doesn't come back from that neck injury like he did, you know, when Owen Hart pile drive, yes. drove him. Yeah. I really think, I truly believe this, Ken Shamrock could have been the Stone Cold Steve Austin the WWE at that time, WWF, whatever, because his popularity, his legit badass style, I, I really, truly believe it. You know, going into the Royal Rumble that year, it was pretty much set in stone, no pun intended, that Stone Cold Steve Austin was going to win it. But it wouldn't have shocked me if they would have went in a different way where would have, they could have still had you know a Tyson versus Austin type thing and then Shamrock versus Michaels for the belt at WrestleMania 14. Yeah. I truly remember thinking that could have worked. Isn't it, and I want to touch on that for a minute, isn't it weird though that now WWE is so willing to bring in and put over these guys from boxing and UFC, uh, just MMA in general, mm-hmm. and you know Brock Lesnar who 
Yes, he started in WWE, but then he went to, you know, the UFC, did his thing, came back, and he was that trans... They, everybody considered so a transition back, because yeah. it was a transition back. It, it's just... It makes you wonder, like, well, why were they hesitating so long ago? I don't know. I mean, again, you know, like he said, he made a great point there. At the time that he came over, that is when WWF had their big boom with Mankind, and Kane was shortly after, showed up shortly after right. Severin. Um, not Severin, Shamrock. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But Kane... Uh, then, then you had the guys like Mankind, Undertaker, Bret Hart was there a little bit longer, Shawn Michaels. So they had the big boom period, and you know, like he said, he maybe he got lost in the shuffle. I loved his honesty. Um, I loved his honesty about pulling out at UFC three for him to explain how heartbroken he was not to get the fight Hoist Gracie again. Yeah. And really, Hoist Gracie made a ridiculous move when he threw in the towel and didn't fight Harold Howard because again, like he, like Shamrock said, hey, I had to fight two guys. You know, Harold Howard should have had to fight at least, at the very least, Steve Jenham, you know, in the semis instead right. of the finals. Jenham would have been the alternate there. Ironically enough, Jenham comes out, fights Howard in, in, the, in the finals, beats him. But, you know, he was, he was honest about everything. This is a legend, guys. Ken Shamrock um, gave us an hour of his time. Didn't dodge a single question. Not even the one about, you know, his fake sister on TV with the incest angle, which it would have been very easy for him to say, I'm not going to talk about that. Just absolutely incredible interview um easily one of the best we've ever done and i want to throw this out there too if you want to get a hold of us you can reach me by email at coachman 14 twitter i believe is sports underscore key i gotta look at that it might be key underscore we got our twitter hacked a few months ago so we're kind of rebuilding that but um you know best way to always contact me honestly is email coachvin 14 at yahoo.com eli how can these guys get a hold of you we want suggestions for guests any kind of suggestion you could get of. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I'm going to verify that Vince was corrected to sports under, uh, sport, at sports underscore key. That's at sports underscore key. And the uh, the user is key on sports, which is us. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's how you can reach uh, Vince to follow that up. To reach me, if you want to tweet at me, it's at Eli, E-L-I underscore Mooneyham. That's M-O-O-N-E-Y-H-A-M. The user, um, or display name, I should say, is Moon. Um, and that's my um, artist name for my music. Um, and if you want to email me and tell me, hey, we got to get this guy on. You guys got to get him on. Go to uh, email Eli Moon. That's E L I M O O N E five at gmail.com. And just put in there like in the in the uh, headline, be like guest needed for po- uh, for podcast. And I'll know what you're talking about, and I'll go and look at it. Um, where, like I said, like Vince said. Um, you know, I've only done a few of these with Vince, um, but, you know, I like doing them. Obviously, I like coming on here and uh, hearing what some of these guys have to say. Um, and Vince is gracious, you know, or um, willing enough to let me come on, and I'm gracious that he lets me. Um, it's fun. I- I'm excited because, you know, you just don't know what you're going to hear that day. You don't know. Like, we just did the one with Chris Levine last week. Last week? It doesn't even feel like it was last week. But, you know, we did that last week, and he had a lot to say. You know, and then this week, you got, you got Ken Shamrock. Was that last week? Yeah, last Wednesday. Okay, I was like, I, uh-huh. I know all the days are blending together. But, you know, you had Levine last week. It seems like he had so much to say. And then Shamrock comes in and gives us almost an hour of just straight, like, just content. Like, anything any, anything we asked, he was not holding back on. And that's one thing I will say. If, if, you take, if you're going to take away a few things, which I think you'll take more than just a few things away from this interview... Listen to the confidence he has. Yep. You need to, like, if you need to hear, like, something that will motivate you, just listen to the way Ken Shamrock speaks. He has a very good way of knowing that this is how I'm going to do things and this is how it needs to be done, and there ain't nobody that's stopping me that day. And that's, you know, I will say that's how I see Vince doing it right now, and that's how, you know, I try to be, and that's how we should all be. We should all want to be the best. And that doesn't mean we have to, you know, look down on others or do anything like that. We should all want to strive, though, and all meet each other up top at a higher level. So that's what I took away. The confidence, too, was a big thing for me. I was like, wow. Like, I agree. Yeah, that, that, was, that was a big thing. Like, I, at some point, I almost wanted to run through a brick wall because yeah. I was getting motivated. <laughs> yeah, no doubt about it. And just to kind of wrap things up here, like Eli said, you know, we are very open to a lot of people. Um, we hit our mark, our biggest mark, easily with boxing and MMA. You know, me and Eli right. were at, at, the, at the cusp of that, the beginning of that. Yep. You know, so... Yes, we do high school sports. Um, you know, a lot of what we do is high school sports. But, guys, let's face reality here. You know, if we can continue to bring in these big names, we're going to do it. And 
like you said, there's no stopping us. It's been a blast. Coming up next week, we have Bill Alfonso uh, trying to wrap up a time and get that set in stone for Eric Metcalf, former Cleveland Brown that you all love. Metcalf's agreed to come on. we got to set that, get that going. Obviously, my good buddy Goldie, you know, Mike Goldberg, going to get him on the show here. So we have a lot of good things cooking. And seriously, go back and just look at the podcast section of our website at keonsports.com. Going to give you the names of who we've had recently on the show. Sam Houston, WWF legend. Ken Resnick, legend of AWA and WWF. And we even have recent guys like James Ellsworth. James Ellsworth was, was main eventing with AJ Styles and, and, right. and Moxley a few years ago. Yeah, that was, that was... And Carmella. That was a really good one. I, I enjoyed will say, it. I listened to the Ellsworth one probably at least a couple times. It was... That one was really interesting. Thank uh, they're you. all interesting, though. Thank you. But that one was good. As Eli said, last week we had on MMA legend Chris Labine. We've had on local sports people like Chocoletti. We had on Pat Tanaka of Bad Company with AWA, the Orient Express with WWF. Going to try to get his partner on real soon with Paul You know, Paul Diamond. My personal favorite, and this one with Ken Shamrock was great, but my personal favorite was with L. Snow. Guys, he comes so completely out of character. It's amazing. L. Snow is probably, you talk about wanting to run through a wall, this interview with L. Snow made me want to run through a brick wall. Absolutely amazing. Go back, listen to that one. Nikita Koloff, a guy who was probably the scariest Russian character of all time. Nikita Koloff as well. And we're still going. We've had interviews. Ricky Morton, one of the most popular ones we ever did, believe it or not. Ricky Morton got a ton of hits. MMA fighter, John Fitch. MMA former fighter, Sean Shirk, a USC champion. Dr. Death, Tom Pritchard. Hector Guerrero, the famous Guerrero wrestling family. Just one after another. It's been a blast. Um, one that, yeah, quite a few people clicked on. Terry Runnels, obviously the yeah. bombshell she dropped on Brock Lesnar. Uh, WCW announcer Scott Hudson, Gray Maynard, and the list goes on and on and on. Brian Hansen, Brian Kitchen, Felix Wright. What we're saying, swing over to keonsports.com. Look at that podcast section. Email me, tweet at me, email Eli, tweet at him. Let us know who you want on next. Four. Eli Mooningham. This has been Vince McKee. Have a good day. You've been listening to Key on Sports.